This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Just when vaccinated Americans have been enjoying the fresh breezes of what in New England has been a glorious summer of exercise, beaches, and restaurants, the dreaded sight of staring at faceless monsters has emerged out of nowhere. The Centers for Disease Prevention and Control, the CDC, recommends that we wear masks in places where the Delta variant is on the rise. Schools across the country are asking every child and teacher to wear a mask this fall. Harvard, my own university, is insisting that every person arriving on the campus provide proof of vaccination, be tested every week, and wear a mask whenever they're inside a building. But masking interferes with the education process. A child, in order to learn, must be able to see an adult's lips and mouth and cheeks to hear clearly and to capture the full meaning of what is said. And teachers must see a child's face in full to see whether the child has comprehended the material. And this past year, even those students who were attending school in person were not learning as much as in the past. So the evidence suggests masking could very well be a major explanation. Well, so is masking really necessary given the Delta variant? That's the question Marty McCary and his co-author pose in their op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal earlier this month. Dr. McCary is a professor at Johns Hopkins University and editor-in-chief of MedPage Today. He's also the author of a fascinating book called The Price We Pay. So I'm pleased to have Dr. McCary on the Education Exchange today. Uh, Dr. McCary, thank you for joining me. Good to be with you, Paul. Thanks for having me. All right. You so, said I could uh, call you Marty, so I'll call you Marty. Marty, I'm confident that masking is bad for learning, but the question I have for you, a medical doctor, isn't it necessary to protect children from the new variant? So, Paul, I think there's been a lot of groupthink in the COVID response at many levels, and the purpose of science is to challenge deeply held assumptions and dogma. And so that's what we explored in this article. And we've had a lot of assumptions in this broader groupthink of the COVID response. We've had this assumption that natural immunity is no good. That's turning out to be incorrect. Um, we've had an assumption that we need to mask the immune. <clears throat> and I think that there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off. If you look at two-year-old kids, some kids do very well with masks. Other kids struggle, and they struggle severely. Um, so I think what we need to do is ask ourselves, do masks reduce transmission of the virus? How, how much of a contribution is that to mitigation? Are there downsides? Are the downsides universal, or is it a heterogeneous population? In other words, maybe for some or most, there may be minimal or no downsides, possibly theoretically, and for others, there may be significant downsides. In other words, look at a kid who gets severe acne, who fogs up their glasses. By the way, it's about 25% of school children um, uh, age 3 to 18 wear glasses. You're, you're hitting close to home. I am a glasses <laughs> guy, and uh, I actually have found it incredibly difficult to wear a mask and to read material. If I'm speaking and I have to read the material I'm, I'm, as I'm speaking and I've got this mask on, this is a real challenge for me. So um, 
I appreciate your point about glasses wearing. You know, that, they, they fog up when you wear a mask. And so, you know, I think the question is, and by the way, they fog up for most of our medical students when they come into the operating room. So if we see our medical students have trouble getting a good air, air seal on their mask to prevent their eyewear from fogging up, do we really think a six-year-old girl in inner city Baltimore is going to be able to see well while she's trying to learn? And so what I think what we've done is we've had this oligarchy in the United States say, my kid does well with a mask, therefore every kid should wear a mask, or every kid does well with a mask. And the reality is the way in which this recommendation for every child to wear a mask, regardless of immune status, regardless if there's a high or low level of, of COVID in their community, regardless if they have a physical or learning disability, was disproportionate to any scientific support. 160,000 kids have some degree of hearing loss and they're scattered all over schools across America. They're wearing masks. They need to visualize words being phonated. They need, uh, all kids actually need to visualize words for phonetic development. So when you wear a mask for a week or a two or an operating uh, case or um, during an active outbreak, that's one thing. But when you're, you're com we're coming on two years of kids wearing masks for some kids, and there are some downsides for some kids for sure. And by the way, um, to, another question is, are these cloth masks that kids wear reducing transmission. I think they reduce transmission a tiny bit. I think it's a hair. If you look at the size, and this is the interesting thing, right? We can have this conversation about do masks, do cloth masks work in children who are known to be inefficient transmitters of the infection? And in that you know, debate, I'll ask somebody, what's the size of an aerosolized virus? Is it a millimeter, an angstrom, a nanometer, a foot? And you realize this is a territorial discussion where people have deep, deeply held assumptions rather than a scientific one. Aerosolized viruses, half of an angstrom, the pore size is five to 50 in a cloth mask. If we were to look at things we can do to reduce transmission of the virus among kids, cloth masks probably rank number seven or eight, or maybe not even be on the list. So what is the research evidence on masking since the pandemic began? I mean, it's been going on now for, for months, for over a year. And so we should have a lot of information about absolutely. how the mask actually works. So what do we know? Well, I appreciate the question, Paul. We have absolutely zero studies that involve any comparison, comparison. group. There's no control group. There's no comparison group. There's no true, valid, credible study beyond an observational sort of lump sum cohort that wears masks along with doing multiple other mitigation steps. So we really have no science on cloth masks and kids. Now, in the absence of science, we can extrapolate and we can also play it safe and say, look, we, we believe there's some benefit in adults. It may reduce transmission by 10%. I'm talking about cloth masks now. Now, that could be another debate if we want to strap every kid with a KN95. I can tell you doctors and nurses loosen and take off their KN95s at the end of a shift because it's difficult to wear for a long period of time. So that's another conversation. But the cloth masks, which are the masks that kids are wearing, there's no data at all, zero, absolutely zero, that uh, studies that have a comparison group. 
So it's pathetic. I think we, my research team at Johns Hopkins did a study looking at where the NIH spent their money last year. They spent more money on aging research than they did on COVID research. They spent twice as much on aging research than they did on COVID. They spent zero on any study to um, dedicated at looking masks in children. They had four research grants on COVID transmission. By comparison, they had 57 on health disparities in COVID. So we have not been allocating our funding to study this question. So the way in which this recommendation to for every three-year-old in America to wear a mask with such universality and vigor is disproportional to, to any science to support it. Well, it is the case that children have not been vaccinated if they're under the age of 12. So you might say that for young children, because they're not vaccinated, they're at especially severe risk of contracting COVID. And therefore, uh, it's, it's important for the uh, child to wear a mask, even if it does have harmful effects for, for some children. How do you respond to that contention? Well, I would agree. That's the risk-benefit analysis, but we don't have data to support the risks of masks or the benefits of masks right now. So we're flying blind. And we're, let's, let's be honest. We're flying blind. And what I honestly see, Paul, is a lack of any humility by the those at the public policy level um, deeply entrenched in this issue. And look, I get it because last year there, there was a segment of America that was downplaying masks for adults back when we didn't know what we were dealing with. It was scary. And I actually wrote the first mainstream article in the United States calling for universal masking. It was in the New York Times. It was last spring at the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm a big believer in masks. You know, my clinical background was in surgery and I wear a mask in the operating room. But a cloth mask in a young child or someone who's immunized or someone who has a physical or cognitive or learning disability or someone who develops severe acne, we've got to consider not just deaths from COVID, but deaths from suicide and substance abuse and the results of the mitigation steps. And we have not done that in the United States. And we've assumed, and somehow this has risen as the number one way we can stop COVID in kids. It's not, it is a hundred percent not. The number one thing well, we can do- what would you recommend instead? So let's- so the, we allow people to wear masks if they want to, but if children don't want to wear masks, we allow that as well. So what then are the mitigation steps that you would recommend? The key is in mitigation with in schools is ventilation, airflow, distancing, having the kids in pods or what we call potting. And a big one is the vaccination of adults or other people that they're around. That is the biggest driver of reducing transmission in children. By the way, when you see Palm Beach County have 400 kids infected, test positive on day one of school, they didn't get that from other kids. They got it from the households from which they came. And so the number one driver of transmission in kids is adult behavior and adult vaccination. And somehow we've, we've politicized masks to be, and by the way, it puts a pit in my stomach when I see these massive wars over masks in kids. Let's, let, let's put things in context. Our battle right now is that we have 500 to 1,000 Americans dying a day, and they are unvaccinated adults. Let's 
focus and come together where the problem is. It's not cloth masks and kids. That is not our battle right now. And if you look at the trajectory of COVID, it's, it is so contagious in kids. Quite honestly, Paul, I'm not sure come January 2022, which is the earliest we could see a vaccine in kids under 12, not, not only administered, but the immunity kick in at the earliest. I'm not sure any kid in the United States will avoid getting COVID between now and then. And we may look back and say, hey, look what all this torture we did to kids, shutting them out of schools for a year, restricting what they can do, limiting their interaction, covering their faces, limiting phonetic development, creating a whole army of kids walking into speech pathologists because they're having trouble now with phonation, uh, you know, acne increasing and severe, adults downplay acne. But for a kid, that can be the most stressful thing in, a, in the life of an adolescent. And we downplay it. And this it's this sort of, we're doing, we're imposing things on kids without their input, without their consent. And I think we're going to look back and recognize we, we did not handle this properly. So that's a very interesting point you just made. You're, you're saying that the Delta variant is so contagious, especially among children, and children are not gonna wear masks all the time. I mean, they may in school, but they're not. As soon as they get out of school, they're gonna take it off. They're gonna play with their friends. They're gonna be seeing their brothers and sisters. You're saying this is gonna spread so fast that um, this effort to uh, continue is just sort of mindless. Yeah, well, it already has spread much further than we're willing to accept. And one way, you know, if you know anything about my research, um, I like to push the field of medicine. There's a lot of group think, and there's a medical establishment that is very closed off to new ideas. And as a result, we've had almost no scientific achievements in cancer and in food as medicine and many other areas of healthcare where we should be seeing advancements. And so one of those uh, deeply held assumptions is that, and it bothers me every time I hear it, is that the number of cases in the United States is the number of cases reported by the CDC or the, or the Johns Hopkins website, um, my own institution's tracking system. It's not, it's not. Half of cases right now are getting detected with home testing systems that are not part of those numbers. And we're only testing roughly one in 10 to one in 20 cases out there because most kids are getting infected and are totally asymptomatic. That's the vast majority of infections in kids. So uh, roughly half of kids in the United States may have already had COVID or have it right now um, based on the numbers. Uh, because take, for example, the very conservative number, one in 10. We've only been capturing one in 10 cases. Some say it's one in 20, like Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, suggests maybe as high as one in 20. Let's just say it's one in 10. Well, 4.5 million kids have tested positive out of 52 million school school age children. Well, if people get tested, aren't they? And they're and they're asked to quarantine. Aren't we going to have to basically shut our schools down? I mean, if variant oh. is really this widespread, as soon as we begin to document it, and if you say once you've been identified as having COVID, you can't come to school. Aren't we basically going to be shutting down our schools again? Probably. Probably. The, I will tell you this though, if we use the same criteria now for other respiratory viruses, our schools are gonna be shut down or masked in perpetuity forever because we're not going to eliminate 
respiratory viruses. There's more kids in the hospital today in America with RSV infection, respiratory syncytial virus, than COVID-19. COVID-19 is becoming like HIV, a highly stigmatized virus where people have a disproportionate amount of fear relative to other legitimate viruses that harm kids. And so we're creating this new world now where it's, you know, oh my gosh, there's a case in the school. Well, 25 million kids in the United States have gotten the infection already. And we're looking at a mortality rate or hospitalization rate of 1.4 per 100,000. And the survival of those hospitalized is 99%. It's comparable to influenza, just more prevalent. Well, that's what uh, a study just that came out of England today uh, is reporting that uh, it's 99% uh, survival rate uh, among children uh, if they get the in if they get the infection or uh, no you uh, and you consider the the probability that they will get the infection that they will die from that that it's 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 minuscule. You know, no, there's a lot of countries in Europe and around the world that have recognized the kids need to be in school. If we don't have them in school or we cover their faces during all their, you know, two years of their development, there's going to be consequences and they may be worse than COVID. And therefore kids should be in school with no mandate for masks. That's the UK. That's many countries, many countries. And if you look back at the data, the lack of a mask mandate had no impact at all on transmission among kids. In other words, the, the kids are going to get COVID. More, many more kids will get COVID. Maybe all kids will get COVID. The question is, does the cloth mask reduce that? And there's no data that it does. It may slightly reduce it, but it comes at a cost for some kids. So you mentioned other respiratory diseases, and I haven't seen anywhere what the risk is to a vaccinated person. Let's say it's an older child or it's a, a teacher at school, and you're vaccinated and you're exposed to uh, the Delta variant. Um, what is the risk that you will be hospitalized or, or, or will die as compared to if you're exposed to influenza and you um, and you haven't been vaccinated for that? Two points. First of all, the unvaccinated pose no significant public health threat to the vaccinated. That's a common misnomer. They pose the threat of a common cold or what we call a minor breakthrough infection. Um, the other point is we don't have good numbers on COVID in kids, but let's let's use the numbers that we do have. Roughly, in a typical flu season, we, we may have 100 to 500 deaths in kids under 18 years of age. We have one to 200 deaths of kids from RSV infection. How many kids have died of COVID-19 in the last year and a half? I gave you annual, annual numbers, but let's look at the last, in the entire year and a half of COVID-19. It was 335 a few weeks ago. Now it's like 360 or something like that. Um, that includes deaths when we didn't know what we were doing as doctors. We were not managing those patients appropriately when they came to the hospital. That's what the doctors tell me from the pediatric ICUs around the country. So the basal uh, fatality rate 
is comparable or lower to the other viruses. I'm not downplaying it, but we know it's also concentrated in a select group of individuals. They are kids with a pre-existing medical condition. So if we ask ourselves, what is the risk of a healthy child in the United States dying of COVID? I will tell you, it's about one in 10 million or 20 million, or show me a case report because it is so rare in, in my capacity with my public profile, have asked doctors around the country in our number two trade publication and other places, if you know of any healthy child under 18 who has died of COVID, please let me know. I'm trying to get good statistics because the CDC is not telling us. And she, the CDC director was asked point blank and she said she didn't know. Turns out that we think there's a couple cases out there. Out of 56 million kids, we think we found a couple cases of healthy children who have died of COVID. So it's really a problem if you have a, a, uh, a problem with your immune system or some other comorbidity. That's right, that's right. We think that's nearly all the deaths have been in that population. And there have been some deaths when we didn't know how to treat COVID earlier in the pandemic. Now we're pretty good at treatment. Kids are still getting sick. Death is not the only outcome. They do come to the hospital and they can develop the inflammatory syndrome called MISC, but uh, they also develop that from other conditions, other viruses. So you would recommend an even more aggressive effort to make sure that everybody gets vaccinated. The biggest problem in the United States uh, preventing deaths from COVID is inadequate vaccination. And if more effort were put into that, instead of enforcing a mandate against on, on all children, we would be using public policy more effectively. That's right. We should be um, not divided as a country, but united to encourage non-immune people to be vaccinated who are vaccine eligible. But here's the problem with that. Public health has lost a lot of credibility. Look at the way they downplayed delaying the second dose. I, I spoke about this in five op-eds. I went on multiple media interviews, radio programs, radio programs that would make me vomit. I went agreed to go on because People needed to know that they should delay the second dose to three months. You get 3.5 times better immunity. We wouldn't even be talking about boosters if we would have done that, okay? But the medical establishment said in a very rigid way, we got to stick to the three or four week interval between doses. Well, guess what? That was effectively one dose because it was too narrow of an interview. With all vaccines and medicine, the longer you space them out, the better the immunity. Well, guess what? The two doses were probably too high in kids as well. And so we probably should have focused on first doses in kids instead of too close, short interval, regular do adult doses in teenagers. So we lost a lot of credibility from this rigidity that we have coming from our public health agencies. Well, you know, the, the CDC might take the position if we're not rigid, people won't pay any attention. So this is the, what we have to have is a message. The message may not be perfectly correct, but we have to stay on message. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to convince people to do what we want them to do. Well, that's what they do in politics. But medicine should be different. We need to evolve our strategy as the data come in. I've done that. Look, I called for the lockdowns early on when no one was paying attention to this pandemic. That's how I got roped into COVID as a, as a figure in this national debate 
is I was like, wake up, we got to close things down. Shut, we've got to shut things down, including schools. This was scary. We didn't know if we were going to lose 1% of our nation's children when we were watching what was happening in Wuhan and Italy. And as the data came in and we could do the risk stratification, we had to evolve our position. And you don't see that humility from our public health leaders. You see the opposite. And so this rigid sort of hard line, for example, ignoring natural immunity, they've lost a lot of credibility because now we're a year and a half into the pandemic and natural immunity is solid, it's effective, it's more durable than vaccinated immunity. And 18 months into it, it's going strong. And yet when the public health officials were told, hey, I have natural immunity, I recovered from COVID, I've got circulating antibodies to COVID, do I still need a vaccine? With absolutely no data, they just made up an answer and said, oh, uh, yeah, still, you still have to get it and you can't attend university or college without it. That was a terrible non-scientific response. It damaged the credibility. Well, uh, Marty, this has been great chatting with you day, uh, today. Thank you very much for taking an objective, let's stand back and look at it, uh, point of view on a topic that everybody feels incredibly passionate about. <laughs> That's right. Well, Paul, good to be with you. I've been speaking with Dr. Marty McCary. He's a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He's the editor-in-chief of MedPage Today and author of a book, entitled The Price We Pay. It's about our medical care. So thank you, Dr. McCary, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast every Monday at noon Eastern time on the Education Next website.